Grand Touring Motorsports started as a social group of car enthusiasts, but we've expanded into all sorts of motorsports disciplines, and we want to share our stories with you. Years of racing, wrenching, and motorsports experience brings together a top-notch collection of knowledge and information through our podcast, Break Fix. Hey everybody, Crew Chief Eric here, and filling in for Brad tonight is my special guest co-host, Crutch. Hi everyone. Luxury, sophistication, simplicity, and above all, safety. Those are the adjectives you might use to describe our feature vehicle tonight. Mike, what are you on about? What else? Volvos. Excuse me, what? What if I told you Volvo made a hot hatch? A Volvo only known to a few as the 480. And what's with us tonight to unpack this mystery car are my friends Emily and Nate. Oh, a pleasure to meet you both. Welcome to Breakfix, Emily and Nate. Thanks for having us. Hi, Eric. Hi, Mike. All right, so let's get into this. Let's talk about your vehicle history. Let's drive to this Volvo. Let's not run straight for it yet. So tell us a little bit about your vehicle history. It took a, quite a while for me to become kind of a car head. So in high school, my parents had an old 1985 Toyota Tercel hatchback. I'm sorry. Baby blue. <laughs> uh, it was a really crappy car, but it was stick shift. So I learned, learned on a stick shift, which is nice. All my friends used to joke that it was uh, the Pope Mobile because it's a big, like, tall, boxy thing. And the Pope vehicles are always like these big, boxy, bulletproof glass things. And they would joke about that. Uh, so I had that, and then one day going to high school, the uh, the front axle broke. <laughs> um, and uh, we're, we're very accustomed to that around here. <laughs> um, and so the, the next car I got after that was a, oh goodness, it probably was a 1993 Ford Escort wagon hatchback thing. Like the, the teal green Ford Escorts. It's a very uh, common color if you're familiar with genre of the Ford Escort. So that was a good car. And then going off to college and needing my own car and not just one that I was borrowing from my parents, I ended up getting a uh, 1990 Acura Legend, uh, which was pretty cool. Uh, V6, also standard transmission. Those cars are very sought after these days because there aren't very many of them left. Yeah, I wish I, wish I still had it. Um, it was nice driving it home from work one day on 95 South and the timing belt went. Uh-oh. So that, that kind of died a, a death. After that, I had a really crappy Mazda protege. <laughs> I'm, starting, uh, so, I'm starting to sense a theme here. So, so my, early, my early car history was basically any car that's like $2,000 or less that I can just drive into the ground until it dies. And that pretty much describes a lot of them. The, the protege was interesting in that at some point in my ownership, this was also, again, before I got into maintenance and taking care of cars on my own. Protégé, you see a pretty good gas mileage, about 30 miles per gallon. At some point, what I know now is the water pump started failing and it started losing coolant <laughs> through the water pump. And it, it kept, kept getting worse and worse. And at some point I was getting 30 miles per gallon of like water that I would, <laughs> I would, I would go out to the car, put a gallon of water in the car, drive to work, I'd have to have another jug in the trunk uh, <laughs> to top up to get home. And then it, at some point it just got so bad it was like falling out as, as quick as I was pouring it in. Then I had a, uh, 
Volkswagen VR6 Passat. I think it was a 90, 95. The one that has no grill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was a really cool car, but I only owned it for seven days. <laughs> I, I bought it. You are all in Maryland, so you know the, the Maryland safety inspection process, which is kind of rigorous and nitpicky. No, it's not. So, so I, 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 I looked at all the nitpicky things that they were going to catch me on. I ended up, this is where I started to get a bit into cars. I ended up going to uh, Crazy Rays when they were still called Crazy Rays out in Hawkins Point one. Yeah. So I got some parts, was on my way home to go shower before going off to work. And I was going over the key bridge there, I guess on 695, a, uh, a waste management garbage truck uh, on the crest of the bridge had just blown out its drive shaft. And it was Ooh. sitting there in the middle of the road in front of me. And I didn't see it until I came up over the crest and there was a car on my left and uh, K rail and <laughs> the water on the right. Uh, so I drove right over it uh, and it caused the airbags to go off and it sheared part of the oil pan off and uh, basically totaled the car. <laughs> so that was fun. Um, but that's kind of where my story with cheap cars ends. Because of the accident with waste management, they were at fault. There was an insurance settlement, which gave me, a, I, I think I paid about $1,400 for the, for the Passat. And then they gave me about $3,000 for the car and then $5,000 pain and suffering. <laughs> so I had a decent chunk of money to get a car. And here's where I start getting into weird Swedish stuff, aside from like Swedish metal. You bought a Saab. I bought a Saab, yes. God, how did I know? <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in New England, uh, in New Hampshire. My parents uh, were still in New Hampshire at the time. I was, still, I was down here in Maryland. So Saabs were very, were very popular up in New England. Yeah, um, I heard you get your that. driver's license and keys to a Saab in the same day. <laughs> I think they also do a moose test or something. They like crash a, crash a Saab into a moose or something. And, and, and as Crutch mentioned, Swedish and Volvos are notoriously safety-minded. So yeah, I got a Saab 9.5. Unfortunately, it was GM era. It was a 2003 Saab 9.5 ARC. So it was the V6, and it was it was a turbo, but it was like super underpowered, low boost. It, it, it was a giant like beast of a, I think, old GM engine that they threw in there that had no, no room in the engine bay. That car, I got it with like 100,000 miles on it. It, it lasted pretty well. Um, I put like another 100,000 on it, but it, it always had like weird electronic issues. Like it would, wouldn't want to start every once in a while. At uh, one point, I hit a deer <laughs> in it. Being a sob, it survived the deer hit pretty well. But there, it, there must have been like a hairline crack in the radiator that the insurance company never caught when they 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 replaced like the headlight and things. So you were back to a gallon of water every day. So you were used yeah, to this. almost yeah. yeah. So I had a friend who was more interested in cars and uh, had more history than I had, and he and I talked and we're like, yeah, we should try to fix it. Let's try to replace the radiator on our on our on our own. Which on a normal car, replacing a radiator is pretty simple. On this Saab, it was a nightmare. <laughs> the front grill uh, area has this big metal lip that comes up over, and the the radiator's tucked way up under there. And then there's the intake manifold and like some 
turbo pipes and stuff all in the way. So you have to like disassemble half of the front of the engine to be able to get the radiator to be able to pull it towards the engine and up and out. It, it was a disaster. It, it took two days, but I did, I did get it done. That was interesting. Um, and that, that was kind of my real first foray into doing anything other than like an oil change uh, or, or brakes on a car. Let's pause there as Emily has been patiently waiting. <laughs> and I hear that you have a history and uh, your family history of being petrol heads. So let's, let's talk about that and unpack a little bit. Oh, geez. Uh, Christ, you've been talking to my mom way too much. Yes, I have. <laughs> so my parents are both retired Navy and they're very much into muscle cars. So I've been around muscle cars for a while. Um, my mom loves them. My dad loves them. Like American muscle has been like what I was kind of born and raised with, which is really strange. So my very first car was a 96 Isuzu Rodeo and it was black and it was lifted and had mudding tires on it. It was, it was very redneck country, which was fabulous. I mean, like if you come from an American muscle car family, you have to have redneck country cars as well. But I loved it. It was a wonderful car. It was a stick shift. So I learned how to drive stick. I actually learned how to drive stick in my mom's little tiny blue Nissan truck. And I still remember her yelling at me, don't squish the shampoo bottle when you shift because we had just come back from the hair salon. So I loved that car. I was not working on cars myself at that time. I still remember my dad writing in like paint pen on the battery, like make sure you're putting water in the battery so it runs and like this is the positive and this is the negative. I also changed the spark plugs on that like myself once. That was an accomplishment for me. I did take it to a place that does oil changes and being really young and very naive at the time, they're like, oh, well, you have to change your transmission fluid. We have to change all this stuff. I'm like, okay, because I just had gotten a car. I didn't know that much about it. They ended up draining all of the oil out of the engine and not putting it back in. So I was on my way to college on 50, headed to two, because I was going to Anne Arundel Community College at the time. And the entire engine decided to uh, weld itself together on the bridge. It's a good way to During rush hour traffic. And then after that ensued like a four week battle over my poor rodeo about who's going to get to do work on it. Cause I had it towed to my shop and then that the oil place decided to have it towed overnight to theirs. And I had it towed back and we went back and forth for a while. Eventually I got a new clutch, <laughs> I got a new transmission. I got a lot of new stuff and it worked out really great. And then I made a really dumb decision to trade it in so my significant other at the time could get a new car. And then I inherited my parents' Mitsubishi Diamante, which was a 2001, which are lovely cars unless you ever have to change the brakes or the rotors on them. And if you do, you have to do it every six months because they're crap and it's very expensive. So I eventually got rid of that car because it was just too much. The value of the car wasn't in it for every time I had to get new brakes and new rotors. After that, I borrowed a car from someone. It was a horrible little tiny white car, but it drove. I actually happened to take it to work one day when my house had flooded. So I saved the car from a flood. After that, I got a 2003 Volkswagen Passat, which at the time I didn't know had significant electrical failures. It's German. Uh, it, well, yeah, like remember, young, naive, 
I'm still kind of young and naive with cars. Well, no, you're talking to people that the three of us own Volkswagens. So <laughs> we know the Germans have electrical problems. We just don't. Care. <laughs> so, it's a given. If the check engine light is not on, there is a problem. The car's <laughs> it's burned out. Well, I took it to a German mechanic who is like, you have a problem with your ECU. It needs to be replaced, but it might not be that. It might be this other thing. And I'm like, well, I don't have that kind of money right now. I'll just get a new car. And as I was on my way to go get the new car in Virginia that I already had a loan for, it was just for this car, the entire um, power on the vehicle failed on 495. And I was able to get it off onto an exit ramp and it was like 95 degrees outside and I couldn't get the windows to go down. <laughs> it was a very bad experience. So I had to get my parents to get a vehicle to tow that one to a junkyard, get rid of the title and then figure out how to go buy the car that I was supposed to get. So I ended up getting a 2016 Hyundai Accent because it was affordable. It was super cheap and it had an undisclosed front end collision. <laughs> <laughs> which i'm pretty sure my, my current passat has the same because there's overspray all over the place in the front end of that car <laughs> well so it wasn't the overspray that gave it away it was the inside wheel liner was mm -hmm. missing so i was like oh that's a little weird and then i i went to replace it and then i found a tire rub and then over time i've started to notice other problems we actually just did the brakes and the rotors on it and found out the rotors were warped not horribly, but bad enough that it would you could feel it pulse when you were braking. So I still drive that car because I, I was going to say that the indicator for me would have been the white bumper and hood and the rest of the car was fuchsia. But, you know, hey, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's all the same color. They did a good job painting it. But that's that's kind of my car history. I still like American muscle cars. My parents have a GTO and my dad used to have a Catalina. Um, I took the Catalina to prom, actually, when I was in high school. So a convertible Catalina. A convertible cantilena. That thing drove like a glorious boat. It was wonderful. But what our listeners may not know is you're a blogger for Garage Riot, which we'll talk That's about right. in a little bit. So you, I think you're being a little bit modest in terms of your car aficionado status. I, mean, I think you're more of a, like a secret clandestine car enthusiast, right? So Emily, we mentioned earlier that you blog for Garage Riot and we recently established a partnership with them. And so in my understanding, you've been with them for a very long time and I hear your member number is quite low. So I wanted to get a perspective from you on what it's like, what it's about and, and why you joined. Yeah, so I actually joined Garage Riot. It was our first time at the Vintage. They usually have like a, a pre-vintage party and they, it was Donovan and one of the other guys, Andy, they had a booth and nobody was going up to them. And I had just come off of a major recruiting trip. So I was still very friendly and outgoing with people. I approached them they were like, we're giving away stuff. I'm like, oh, you mean you're just going to give it to me? Like, no, you have to enter and join online. So I, I ended up joining online because I was trying to get into cars at the time. Uh, we were still dating and like I started hanging out in um, Garage Riot. It was a small social media platform for car enthusiasts and there was like a couple of members. I think there were less than 20 at the time that I had joined. It was nice because I got to start reading articles about cars. Like I, I started learning about cars, learning about Formula One racing. There was a lot of the uh, cultural aspects of car ownership. Some of the stuff that I, I've talked to Donovan and the rest 
also the folks on the channel about is like women in cars and like that aspect of the industry and what does that look like. And so they, they're good at pulling in articles. There's quite a few female members within Garage Riot that, that talk about their experience with cars and some of the stuff that they do. Some of them work on them. Some of them just like staring at them and driving them, which is totally cool as well. But it's a community of car enthusiasts, people that either just buy cars and take them to shops and get the fixed or do the work themselves and think of it like not necessarily Facebook for car people but more like the Facebook and any other social media platform for them and they've got a presence on a couple of other sites but they allow uh, members to write articles and share them have photo galleries engaging discussions there's vendors on there as well so if you're looking for coupons they have a, a nice hookup with vendors they'll post coupons for a couple of the sites as well it's a good community. The folks on there are very friendly. They're very open. They ask questions. They're engaging. We post bad videos of car crashes. It's very welcoming. They're doing a lot of changes to the site. So I, I had talked to Donovan and company uh, about a year and a half ago, it feels like, about a potential new project that they could embark on. So I'm hoping sometime soon that they will have it that should make uh, managing your mods to your cars a lot easier. But they, they've got a bunch of coming changes and it's, it's a great community to be a part of. Very cool. And we've enjoyed the time that we've been spending with the team from Garage Riot. So we're looking forward to expanding that partnership and doing some crossover episodes with them as well. So that's also a discussion. But I think we've now gotten to the point where we need to talk about this mystery Volvo that, you know, two people on this planet know about, and we're talking to them right now. So <laughs> how do we get to this Volvo 480? When did this happen and how did it happen and, and why? Um, well, I, I'll start. I have the luxury of working in a place that allows me to do travel and learn about new technology that's going on. So I had the opportunity to go to a conference overseas and he decided to tag along and go explore the Swedish countryside while I was in Denmark. Let's be fair, he had spent probably about two months before this trip researching <laughs> Volvo 480s and reminding me every single day, like, I've always wanted a Volvo 480. I've always wanted one. <laughs> wait, wait, so let's unpack that. Yeah. How did you find the thing in the first place? Because, I mean, when Crutch brought it to my attention, I was like, wait, what? Excuse me? It's a hatchback. I mean, you think hatchback Volvo and you're thinking, you know, C30, right? And that's pretty modern, which they kind of styled it after a, a couple of Italian cars. That's the front end of the S40, stuff like that. There's certain Volvos that people know, you know, the shit brown 800 series from the 80s, you know, diesel 240s, you know, those kinds of things. Turbo you know, the, bricks. Yeah, the 850 yeah, the turbo bricks, the 850 sedans, the V70s, the XC90s, you know, everybody knows these cars. And then obviously, if you're an old schooler like I am and you like classic cars, the P1800 is like the car. It is the Volvo, Beautiful. right? And I happen to be a fan of the C70 and there's a whole backstory with Audi on that one, but we'll save that for another time. But the 480, it's not something that you go, you know, when you're talking about cars with your friends over a beer, you go, oh, yeah, the 480, what? <laughs> it's not a car that comes up in conversation. So how do we get there? So, uh, so certainly I'm kind of a quirky person. I mean, I've got, I've got no. hair and, and no, no rings and things <laughs> like that. So I've, I've always had somewhat quirky tastes. To rewind a little bit, after my horrible experience working on a Saab, I was interested in, in, in working more on cars. So I'm like, I, I need a fun car to, to, to learn on. My requirements were it needed to be cheap, like under a thousand bucks because I didn't have much money. 
it needed to be 20 years old or older, so it would be exempt from like Maryland safety and inspection stuff, uh, so it could qualify as a historic car. And it needed to be kind of simple. So no, no OBD2, no computers, none of that. So I actually ended up finding a Volvo Amazon for 750 bucks in Catonsville that didn't run, that I bought and then uh, got trailer to my house. We and still then, have it. And then and has it ever on. run? It has run. Well, the engine has run. It has not moved. It has moved on its own power <laughs> at some at one point. By gravity? Uh, but it did not stop on its own power. And then that's where I got stuck. Because like, as I dove into the brakes, I found a bunch of rust. And then the rear brakes were drum brakes. And trying to pop the rear drum brake off. When I popped it off, it cracked the hub and it was just one thing after another. And like, they don't sell parts for some of these things. So like finding replacement parts became problematic. And so instead of replacing the drum, I found a whole nother rear axle, but that's a, that's a whole nother story. But getting into the old Volvo Amazons, I started getting that appreciation for cars like the P1800 because I came across those after I got the Volvo, Volvo Amazon and was researching more of the history of Volvos around that time. I was actually on a work trip in Germany at one point, and I was walking around the town and came across it, a white 480 in Germany there. And I'm like, oh, that's a really cool looking 80s style, like straight lines and everything. And I remembered it at that point in time. And when Emily and I were going to Denmark and I'm like, okay, well, I should look for cool cars in the area while, while I'm in Denmark on vacation. There was no cool cars. It was, I should look for a Volvo 480 <laughs> while we're on vacation. But wait, let me look at it before we go on vacation. It was, so. it was always in the back of my mind as a cool car that was never sold in the U.S. Slightly, uh, slightly obsessed. <laughs> only, only a little. What do you think about this one, honey? Does this look good? What about this one? I don't know. I still like this one. That was almost every day for two months. There had to have been a conversation in there that goes, oh, look, it's rare in this color. <laughs> no, no, the rarity was not a thing. It was about whether or not the finish was good, how the interior looked. Did it have the original parts on it? Um, was the interior 1980s enough? I think we had that conversation as well. Do they have like pastel stripes in the seats on some of them? It, oh, yes. Yeah, mine has yes. like it's it's like a velour cloth interior. It reminds you of with a like rain, bus. rainbow, yes. rainbow like stripes. Greyhound. You, you know, you just you just put a thought in my head. You know, when you say is it eighties enough? I mean, <laughs> you went all the way to Denmark to find this car when you could have probably gone down to a used car lot in DC and picked yourself up an IROC Camaro, which screams nineteen eighty four. Right? <laughs> he has the wrong hair. <laughs> so unlike Emily, I, I don't have any sort of love for American muscle cars. My parents were not car heads, so I didn't get anything from, I didn't inherit any of that from them. Except I'm always just kind of like European cars. An 80s IROC is not a muscle car. It's Malaysia. It's not a muscle car. Just, It's just a car. <laughs> I guess maybe the clarification is I've never really liked American cars. <laughs> All right. This one's special too. So for our listeners out there, here we are. Picture yourself. Denmark, 2000 something, right? I feel, 2018? I feel like we're having a golden girls moment here. But what people don't realize, Volvo has changed hands over the years, right? It's original ownership being built based in Sweden, et cetera. Ford bought them. Now they're owned by Tata. They've changed hands a couple of times in between there. But a lot of cars were built in Sweden for the general EU market. 
except for the 480, which was built in Holland and is comprised of a lot of French parts, which has its own issues and in its own right. So here we are, we're lusting after this 480. You're in Denmark and black is best, which I've, I've seen pictures of this car. So how do you get it back? So I have done a lot of research. I found one online looking at all the European car sites and I arranged to meet this guy who was selling it. He owned a, a small little classic car shop in Sweden. Uh, so it was about two hours away from Denmark. Uh, so she went off to her conference in the morning. I get on a train, I go up to, to Sweden across the, the water and go to uh, a small little town up there. Then have to get on a bus. <laughs> to get to the car shop and then have to walk about half a mile but eventually get there and this guy's got this really eclectic collection of old european cars he's got an old mercedes-benz he's got a renault like 4cv he's got a, a morris or an austin minor 1100 or something like that He's got an old BMW, and then he's got this Volvo 480 Turbo. He didn't speak very much English, but he had a friend who did. Uh, so he called his friend over, his friend drove over, and then his friend and I got in the car and went, went for a test drive, drove it around for uh, 20 minutes or so, brought it back. He had a lift in his shop, so I was able to actually get it up on a lift to take a look at the underside of the car, which was nice to check out the, the quality of the condition of rust and things like that. Are those bodies galvanized? Are you, are you have to worry about rust a lot on those? I, I think so. I, I think I need to worry about rust. Okay especially being a Swedish car and, and having snow and stuff up there. It checked out and the, the price was pretty good. It was about, it was only about $4,000 American uh, after, after the- <laughs> You are breaking that budget, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> but there was a few problems. So I was there in May of 2018 yeah. in Sweden, yet the car was produced- November. In November of- 1993 and so it wasn't yet 25 years old to be able to be imported based on the 25 year dot import laws and that's at the tail end of the 480s production run if i remember yeah, correctly it ran in 95 so this was manufactured november 1993 i was there in may so it wasn't 25 years old until november, <laughs> until november. so build in 93 was it sold as a 94 no, it was sold as a 93, okay. but the problem is the DOT laws for the 25-year rule are based on the production date, not the model year. So I agreed to buy it, and thankfully uh, the, the seller said he could just hold on to it for, for six months. So I, I agreed to buy it. Uh, we signed a contract. I wired him the money through a cool app called TransferWise, which does kind of foreign currency conversion and easy money transfers. And then we came home and had to figure out and, how to get it And here. then I had six months to try to figure out how the hell am I gonna get a car that I bought in Sweden to the US? Cause I've never done that before. And like none of this process is really all that well documented anywhere. We spent probably like four months researching like vehicle import services. We got to a point where we were talking about, well, maybe we can buy another car and put them both in a container and have it have the entire container come over? How many cars can we fit in a container to bring it over to get the most value? When you say cars, you mean another 480 for spare parts. That, right? was, actually, that was actually in my mind because like getting, getting parts is awful. And like, it'd be nice to have like a parts car I could just seal off of if or, I need Or it. my own, but okay. No, no. We'll get to that though. So it, it would be, be nice to have one that like keep original 
and period correct and then one to like play with modify and play yeah. with but so we, we spent like four months trying to find places and the quotes that we were getting were ridiculously astronomical and he's a part of and I think I'm a part of the group now um a BMW group on Facebook right it was BMW and it, it was the vintage yeah the vintage um and he just decided to post on the question I have a car how do I get it to the states and like what were all the responses it was like one person this is the person that you go like, to like like half a dozen or, or more people all replied with the same person. So they've all, they've all used this guy in the past. Hans, um, Hans Gruber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know a guy. It was, it was essentially that we know a guy, everybody knew a guy. They've all in the BMW community used him. Um, he's well known in uh, importing like E, uh, E28s and things like that. And uh, so I contacted that, contacted that guy and he seemed uh, really reasonable to work with. Uh, it was a little touch and shady. go shady at the beginning shady. because it was shady the whole way. It was super shady because, like, between contacting him and like occasionally hearing back from him, there was no conversation of cost. We were just moving full on, full steam ahead with getting this car. No conversation about cost. Well, I I brought up cost in every single interaction with him. It's just he never answered those questions. <laughs> you are in good Hans with Hans, all right? <laughs> but like, he's like, yeah, I can do that. And like, he sent a, a guy with a tow truck all the way. So this guy, this importer base in the Netherlands, the car is out in Sweden. He sent a guy with a tow truck all the way out to Sweden to pick up the car on my behalf, to tow truck it like a thousand kilometers back to the Netherlands. The battery was dead when they got it. He replaced the battery for me. He did all the cleaning and everything you need to do to ship a car. Sent pictures of the um, whole thing. Sent pictures of all the stuff. Right, right before it was about to get on a ship, he emailed me the bill, which was thankfully very reasonable. I was, I was worried because up to that point, he had gone all the way to get my car. He had the car in his possession. He had all the paperwork about the car. We were starting to worry whether or not there would be white powder in the vehicle when we got it out of port. Or if he would try to hold the car ransom. But, yeah. Um, no, he was completely professional at the end. Very reasonable in terms of costs. And then uh, uh, he, sh he put it on a boat in the Netherlands. It shipped to the Baltimore port. I think it shipped at the end of November or beginning of December of 2018. And it showed up like the day before New Year's, took about a month. When I got the actual notification from the shipping company in the US that it was ready for pickup. Then you're faced with another challenge. So you got this car now in, in the Port of Baltimore and it's a car that won't be in Maryland's DMV database because it was not a car that was built nor manufactured for the US. So where do you go from here? And <laughs> <Glenn> Bernie. <laughs> like Nate said, the, uh, the process for bringing in cars like this are, is very much undocumented, not really much of anywhere. And there, even when you go through, like, we got it to the port, there's no documentation for how you get it out of port, really. You kind of have to, like, call around and ask questions. So there's another guy that yeah. knows a guy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, another guy. Uh, that, was, that was interesting. To get it off of port, you can't just drive on there with a normal tow truck or uh, with a trailer or anything like that. Now, in my benefit, I did have a, uh, a cat card being a former government employee. So I, I was able to get on base with my cat card. Otherwise, you need to be escorted while you're um, on the port grounds. Otherwise, you need to be escorted by somebody with a TWIC card, a transport worker identification card. Uh, normal civilians, normal people can't just drive onto the port by themselves. Uh, they have to be escorted. 
in, except in my case, uh, having uh, a government ID. The shipping company just said, go to trailer number whatever. And so I, I find that trailer on the, on the port property. I drive up there. Apparently I was supposed to have been wearing like a high-vis vest because they have all these signs that say, you must wear a high-vis vest. And I wasn't. They Your were, hair wasn't uh, enough? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's how I got away with it. I don't know. But I, I went up there. I had, the shipper had emailed me copies of the import certification and some of those forms that were necessary. I showed them to the, the folks at the trailer and they said, give me five minutes. I'll have somebody drive it out. And then they drove the car out of their uh, of their lots. And, and then I had the car, but then I, then I needed to get the car home because uh, I can't just drive it because it's got no plates or anything like that. Probably um, And not just any tow truck driver can just drive onto the onto the port property and, and tow it home. So I needed somebody with a, a TWIC license who was also a tow driver. Thankfully, one of the uh, companies that I called had somebody who didn't work for them who was a friend of theirs who had a twit card who happened to have a trailer. <laughs> so that guy eventually showed up like an hour later. We got it loaded and it came home and we drove it down the driveway and it sat for what, almost a month, two weeks to a month before we, we got the uh, paperwork. No, no I, I have the paperwork right away. I think like we, the next day or later that week we went to the MVA. So later that week or the next day comment is we had to spend several hours translating Swedish to English and finding the right parts of the form that Maryland would care about because you can't just go to the MBA like you said with this car that's not going to be in their records you have to you basically have to do their job for them and just make it as easy as possible so they could just like type in or punch in the right information so we it was certainly like government bureaucracy at its finest um <laughs> So leading up to all this, we, we had done a lot of research about the process. So I, I felt like I, I knew the process fairly well about what the steps were and what I needed to do. The Maryland import process says that if you have a title or registration that's in another foreign language, oh, yeah, that. you need to have it, you can't just translate it on your own. Yeah. You need to have it translated by, the embassy. by an embassy from the country of origin. So I call the Swedish embassy in DC. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I have a car title that's from Sweden that I would like you to tran uh, translate for me. And like on official like embassy letterhead or whatever, because they like it needed to be official from the embassy. And they're like, no, we don't do that. <laughs> call somebody else. We don't, we, we don't do that. So I was stuck with, okay, what the heck? Maryland law says you gotta do this and then the embassy says, no, they don't do that. <laughs> so we essentially did our best. We went to Google Translate, looked at all the fields and said, oh, that's that's odometer. Yeah. That's like make and model. And we kind of like translated ourselves on a separate document. To be clear, we both have like some exposure to foreign languages. So like it was slightly easier in that we, we could understand based off of other languages we know what they were getting at. But it was still painful. We're talking about like small text fields with mobile phones trying to scan and figure out what it's actually saying. But eventually we got it and he had all the paperwork and he went to the MBA and you were there, what, almost two hours? Two or three hours. Two yeah. or three hours walking through the per person at the desk, 
this is where I need you to put this in your database. And this is the next form that you need to fill out. And I put them in order for you. The, the wait time wasn't three hours of telling them that. It was the normal like two and yeah. a half hour wait at the MBA. Yeah. <laughs> Plus 30 minutes of doing the actual thing. But of course, they don't get this often. They don't get somebody who walks in with a weird Volvo with a weird title that's in Swedish. But they have a desk devoted to it. I've been to the Lombardi MBA. I've seen the the gray market title desk that's like off in the corner. Yeah, but he had all the boxes checked. Swedish, imported, historic tags, that haircut. I mean, it was just like, they didn't know what to do with them. So I, I think because I went in there kind of knowledgeable of the process, kind of like determined and sure of myself. I, I really felt like I knew way more about the Maryland import process than the, than the poor lady behind the counter did because she kept telling me like, oh, well, we, uh, we need a title. And in my case, I didn't actually have a title because Sweden doesn't have titles. They just have registration certificates. And so there, there's somewhere in the Maryland policies that says if you have a foreign vehicle and it doesn't have a title, then you need registration and something else. And so, or bill of sale and registration certificate or something like that. So I had those, I knew the law. I was able to explain to her what she needed to do. And we were able to eventually get through it all. And she, she didn't trip up on the uh, not having a official translation from the Swedish embassy thing. So she was very patient with me walking through my Google translated version of, of the registration certificate. Did you also find it a challenge to get this car insured? So are you going through normal insurance? Are you doing like a Haggerty specialty car insurance? What do you what do you have to do there for what we would consider a gray market car? Yeah, so I, I didn't even try to go through normal insurance because I didn't know of one, how they would handle it at all. And two, like certainly if they were to handle it, I don't think they would give it much value in terms of replacement or, or damage or repair or anything like that. So given the number of cars that we had at the time, uh, I looked into Haggerty um, and we're going, we, we have Haggerty now and I have the, the E30 yeah. on the Haggerty plan as well as the 480. Uh, nice. Now. So I've got those two with Haggerty and I've got the rest of the cars that we kind of more daily drive on, on just normal furniture. Yeah, it worked out well. We got it licensed and well, we got it tagged. But yeah, three, three nervous hours sitting at the MVA wondering if I'm going to be able to leave with Maryland plates and a Maryland title. And, uh, and, and I did. And it was, it was a very happy, <laughs> successful. Until day. he brought it home and decided to try to put plates on it and then found out that the <laughs> U.S. tags are ugly on european cars we clearly needed to have a european style plate on our car i I really like in europe how um you can get american sized plates if you're in europe for american cars like they they have kind of that dual size thing but we don't do that in the u.s and i really think so so i have to ask did you do what all the stands pros do and buy the stretched out maryland tag that has the Maryland tag printed on it, but it's changed into the European format. About it. I, I I really considered that. But decided if you were going to spend the money on a Euro-sized tag, we should make it fun, which is why it doesn't have that. Yeah, so we, we ended up going to a few car shows with the stupid Maryland tags on the front, uh, poking out like a... And took them off. <laughs> like, a, like a buck tooth on, on like a beaver or That's something. That's exactly what it looks like. Like a BMW uh, M4. 
and then I decided what I really need is like show plates. So I ended up getting some big hero plates that say uh, Daft Punk. Well, Daft. Or Daft Punk, sorry. Oh, crap. <laughs> you ruined it. So, so I got some fake European plates that say Daft Punk because, uh, as you mentioned about the a bit about the history of the 480, it was built in Holland in the Netherlands at what was previously the old Daft factory. We actually talked about Daft vans on another episode. They were <laughs> actually quite familiar. <laughs> So it's it's kind of this Volvo car that's built in the Netherlands. So it's kind of a punk. And then Daft Punk being a French band kind of gives its ties to its uh, French, French roots uh, <laughs> with the, the Renault engine and the Renault drivetrain. We've talked about some of your early challenges with the car and you kind of dabbled a little bit here in the tech specs. Let's deeper dive into the tech specs of the car because most people aren't going to know really what it is. And you've alluded to some of it, but let, let's explore that a little bit. It was a uh, unique car for Volvo in a, in a few regards. It was their first front-wheel drive car. It's a front-wheel drive 1.7 liter uh, inline four turbo, in my case, it's a 1993 Volvo 480 turbo. Transverse, correct? Yes. It's in there sideways. Um, yep. And uh, it's it's a fairly light car. It weighs about 2,200 pounds. The 1.7 liter turbo gets about 120 horsepower at the crank stock, uh, 129 pound-feet of torque. So rumor was that when it was being developed, because it's kind of this weird mishmash of Volvo and Renault parts, they actually supposedly sent the engine and the car to Porsche to do tuning. It actually has like a, a Porsche throttle body on it. And supposedly the rumor is that Porsche tuned it up to about 170 horsepower. And then when they gave it back to Volvo, Volvo was like, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We're, we're kind of a <laughs> safety family company here. Can you detune it a little? So that's how it ended up, rumor. Uh, at least uh, down at about 120 horsepower. But that meant that the engine uh, and, and boosts and things were capable of getting up to that higher horsepower. So there's actually uh, some folks still in the in the Volvo 480 community that I found on, on Facebook and, and European forums that do modifications of the ECU to actually restore some of that original kind of fuel map and things and up the boost. Supposedly that's supposed to give you about 150 horsepower um, at the wheels, but I have not dynoed it or anything like, like that. And I'm pretty sure my clutch is at its last legs because uh, when I do get high on boost, I can I can feel and smell the clutch slipping. High on boost, that's like five pounds in Volvo speak, right? Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I think the stock boost is about seven or eight pounds yeah. with the, the modified ECU uh, that I actually have. I actually ordered, I got one from one of the folks on, on one of the forums. It goes all the way up to 14. Oh, wow. And, and so what makes, are we running our Mark IVs? Pretty big difference. 19, so, 20? Yeah, something like that when they're modded. But, you know, stock boost on, a, on the original KO3s is only eight or nine pounds. It's nothing. <laughs> Yeah, so, so being a fairly light car with that kind of power, it's it's actually a really fun, peppy car to drive. Nice. Well, yeah, and, and the power to weight ratio is what really comes into play there. And that's normal for cars of that era, right? They didn't really start getting heavy until the late 90s when they started introducing things like Procon 10, a lot more of the airbags and all these more 
you know, advanced crush zones and things like that. The cars of the 80s and early 90s were still built the old way. You know, they're economical, they're super lightweight. In comparison, that's heavier than a Scirocco, but it's still lighter than an Audi Coupe, which weighed in at about 2,400 pounds. And it's a much larger car. But all those cars of that era, it's like, man, if you were above 2,500 pounds, it was a tank. Yeah. <laughs> cars, like you said back then, you can see out of them so much more easily, like the, the A pillars and everything were smaller. Dinner. which is great until you roll over <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think my my year is actually the last year before they added airbags i think they added airbags in, in 94 which i often have to remind him about whenever we go have fun in the country with the 480 <laughs> i mean you know our track cars most of us for those of us who even keep them street legal the airbags are gone yeah for the most part. because because you know especially the volkswagens the, the stock steering wheel is like a ship wheel <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, so, if they were, that and if they were made by Takata, they didn't work in the first place. So it doesn't really matter. Well, then they're Claymores, not airbags. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, so, you know, the 480 styling wise, it's definitely an acquired taste. It reminds me of a Dustbuster. Well, yeah, it reminds me of a couple of other cars, but I got to give it mad props for having pop-up headlights because that is yeah. period appropriate. You know, you look at some of the design cues, it really still looks pretty modern. I like the fact, you know, we have one here in the background. It's got that little, you know, kind of wing up over the hatchback glass. And this one in particular has wheels on and whatever, but it also reminds me of some of the Mitsubishis of the period. Like if I look at it with one eye crossed and I'm half drunk, it reminds me of the Stereon a little bit, like it, like a miniature version of it. So I can see design cues from other cars, but the question is, who actually designed it? Did Volvo design it or did like Bertone have their, their hands involved? Who was involved in designing the, the 480? I'm going to kick myself because I, I, I do know the person's name, but I can't remember it. Um, I believe it was somebody from Volvo. I think it's John DeVries is the stylist who did it. Back to uh, the pop-up headlights. That was that was another uh, unique characteristic of the 480, especially for Volvo. It was the first and only Volvo to ever have pop-up headlights. And, and the, the interesting thing about that is they did that to meet American safety laws at the time in the 80s because headlights had to be a certain height off the ground and they were planning on actually selling the 480 in the u.s to compete with all the other hatchbacks and hot hatches starting around that time in the late 80s uh, unfortunately it turned out that the economy and kind of exchange rate with the u.s didn't, didn't work out in volvo's favor and they they scrapped plans to bring it to the u.s how big is the 480 let's talk about like wheelbase and overall length it's not big it's tiny it's so small it's it's really small. How's it compared to your E30? Because E30 is something a lot. Exactly. Have. It's smaller than the E30. It's definitely shorter in length than the E30. It's by, narrower too. By a good distance. I would say it's narrower by like what six inches. It's not much. It's just enough. So so you're saying it's not a car for Brad or I? No. Um. I, I don't know. It's actually quite roomy. There's a lot of leg room. I've been told that it's actually a very good car for tall people. It's because of how how the seats are. They're what bucket seats in the front, right? They're bucket. The, yeah, it's, it's a two by two, and so there it's got bucket seats. But the way that the seats are positioned is it, it's very much that you're very lean back. It reminds me of probably closer to like a, a modern race car where you're you're leaned back, you're kind of stretched out a little bit, and then so there's a there's a lot of room, and you don't have a lot of the obstructions that you get with modern cars. Um, like you don't have this big console in the middle taking up a ton of space. You don't have a huge armrest in the door. 
the armrest is very narrow. There's a lot of good room on the inside of the car. The, the two plus two layout is really interesting because the back seats are also bucket seats and they're really comfortable. It's still pretty tight in the I mean, back. It's, 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 a, it's a coupe. So the back is kind of small, but it's it's much more rear leg room. Yeah. I, I can comfortably sit back there, probably not for a long, a, a really long time. But Doug, I, Doug DeMauro could certainly do his get in the back seat test and probably fit. So it begs the question then, what's it like to drive? I would know because I'm not allowed to drive it yet. <laughs> You've had it for two years and you can't drive it yet? <laughs> Shots fired, shots fired. I'm just, I'm just, kidding. I'm just kidding. The only car of his, the Science XP90 that I've been allowed to drive was the E30. And the first time I drove that was the first time I drove a stick in almost 15 years. And we were on a mountain in the dark in a huge fog bank while it was what, raining? Uh, it was certainly horrifying. Fog. I will say, you actually blogged about that experience. I know you blogged about that one. Because I've actually is, read that post. Yeah, the photo is scary. You have not seen it. There's nothing but clouds. Is that Skyline Drive? That was Skyline Drive. Oh, that's Deer a wonderful everywhere. Ride. Like, you could see their beady little eyes along the side of the road waiting to jump out at you. Well, I, I had driven, the, we, we had gone down to North Carolina and Asheville for the, the BMW show vintage. vintage and i had driven all the way down and i had i had promised her that i'd let her drive on the way back and then on the way back it happened to be super <laughs> shitty weather we had like almost complete fog but i drove really well <laughs> and i didn't ruin the clutch it was the first time i learned about engine braking i didn't know that was a thing at the time i was all proud of myself and i still haven't driven the 480 yet <laughs> i will say the other reason you haven't driven most of nate's cars is because a lot of them don't move that's true. That is also true. Well. I have probably pushed his cars further by myself than I would have driven them. <laughs> but the 480, that's got some fun stories so, too. Well, well, yeah. So go, go ahead. <laughs> so, oh gosh, where were we? We had mentioned the E34 that right, Crutch had helped me trailer. Right. So I had um, I, I had posed the question because I was kind of following my, my my train of thought here. What's it like to drive? Right. That was that was my question. <laughs> we kind of segued from there, you know, went to New Jersey and back. So now we're back. So what's the 480 like to drive? Fun. Of, of all the cars that I currently own, and we haven't gotten through all of them yet, but of the cars I currently own, I think the 480 is actually one of the best cars, if not the funnest car to drive, because it's just so light and nimble and handles well. Handles well, like the steering is is responsive. really responsive. And that would uh, be a car with no nannies and no assists. Like you said, it's probably an OBD one car. If not, it's a Motronic car. It's somewhere on the border there. Yeah, it's 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 Motronic. Okay. Um, definitely doesn't have any OBD ports or anything. Yeah. On it. It so helps road really well, especially around the corners. No ABS. It should have power steering. Actually, it does have ABS. Really? It does have ABS and power steering. Oh, nice. But no no airbags, no traction control or anything it, like that. It, I will say that it drives better now than it did when we got it. We, we've done... <laughs> you chuckle. It drove like a boat when we got it. To the point where we had it at the compound and we got in. He's like, I want you to tell me if you think it's like a boat. And we drove down the end of the driveway and I, hit I the think, brakes. I think boat's the wrong analogy. I think it was like, is it like an airplane? But yeah, that, that's Because, <laughs> because <laughs> when you got on boost, like the front nose would just lift up 
because the front shocks were completely blown and it would just like lift the car up by almost a foot yeah. because of how, how bad the shocks were. So we, we ended up replacing the shocks. We ended up putting new springs on it. We which, found- which, which, which was a huge surprise because when I went to take the shocks off, one, I found out how blown they are because I could just extend and collapse them by hand um, as if I was using like a- Slinky. Kazoo it was like a slinky. <laughs> That's how bad they were. What was worse was on the driver's side, the spring was like two coils longer than on the passenger side. So somebody had gone in there at some point and it also had a aftermarket shock in it and replaced the shock and spring on the left so hand side. What we think happened is that at some point in its history that it must have been in a front end collision because the bumper doesn't quite align correctly and there's been modifications to where the bumper and the nose cone mounts to the vehicle. And you can see some slight blending of the paint. On the yeah, the, the paint is blended. Um, the, the mounting points for the bumper, one of them is almost two inches higher than the other. Uh, maybe not two inches, more like an inch. It's definitely not right and we've it looks like somebody has been in there already. But for the driver's side, when we were doing all that work, we found what? The axle wasn't yeah, seated so correctly. To take the front suspension off, you kind of have to pull the half shaft out of the transmission to be able to get enough room to like free the free the suspension components. And what I think happened was probably prior to me when somebody did these shenanigans of installing an aftermarket shock on just one side of the car and a different size spring on that one side of the car. They probably screwed with the the inner roller bearing that's on the inside of that half shaft that goes into the transmission that then is the bearing that that whole axle rides on inside the transmission and they knocked one of the cups off so when i when i did this i found out that that cup was actually sitting inside and all the bearing needles were sitting inside there uh, but not all of them it's a tripod axle then the it's way a that's tripod. The, yeah, yeah yeah so i mean for most of us that's a really common part we run down to you know advanced auto and go pick one up for you know 60 bucks and call it a day and then that's another challenge of owning an imported car so where are you getting parts for the 480 yeah so um netherlands <laughs> florida <laughs> actually florida yeah so um because uh all those are shares a whole bunch of parts with the renault it's funny you keep saying the renault like there's only one in existence so <laughs> Is there a particular one like the R5 or the R21 or, or, or is it? It shares a lot of parts with, I think, the second generation Clio. Okay, I could see that. Gan. Yeah, I had done uh, when we first got the car, like did it, took a test drive, found the horrible suspension liftoff problem. I did a survey of all the stuff that I wanted to, to do maintenance on and, and replace and made a big parts order from two or three different places in Europe. Scandix is a, uh, a parts company in Germany that makes and remanufactures a whole bunch of uh, Volvo and Saab car parts. So I got some stuff from them. And then um, there's, there's a handful of just big superstore car parts places in, the, in the, uh, Europe. Uh, so like Autodoc, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Uh, I think I made a big parts order with them and then found the, the suspension bits that I needed, like the, the strut bearing on the top for the front struts, the, the bill sign struts and lowering springs all in um, 
either the UK or Netherlands. I, I placed a bunch of orders from, from Europe. They arrived from three or four different places. I did all that work in preparation of going to Radwood in, in New Jersey in 2019. So the story of me replacing the front suspension, finding all these weird suspension problems that were there, finding this inner, inner roller bearing, uh, tripod bearing, uh, on the axle was six days before I was supposed to go to Radwood. So I'm like, oh shit, I'm not going to be able to take the 480 to Radwood. I've already emailed them and said, hey, I've got this Volvo 480 that I want to bring to Radwood. Can I get into the- Royalty. Is it royalty? I, There's some like higher tier of Radwood where you can bring in special cars and pay more money to bring in special cars. Yes. <laughs> they were all excited for me to bring the 480 to them. And then six days before Radwood, I found this problem. I'm like, oh crap, I'm not going to be able to bring it because I'm not going to be able to get it on the road because I'm not going to be able to find the part. So I spent like a day doing parts interchange and cross-reference search and found that somebody on eBay in Florida was like the North American and South American distributor and reseller reseller for Renault parts in kind of this region. And he just happened to have one that like cross-matched to, to the Volvo 480. So I ordered that and thankfully was able to get the car back together and uh, make it to Radwood. It, it was an interesting experience putting that back together. We, we still have part of it. It's actually on the key ring, isn't it? Yes. I, I use one of the, the outer bearing races from that tripod bearing as a key ring for the Volvo 480. Very cool. So other than car shows and whatnot, what have you guys done with the 480? Have you done any sorts of, you know, <clears throat> let's say motorsports events with it? Have you done an autocross, maybe a DE? I mean, outside of, you know, the standard cars and coffee, maybe some touring, as you guys mentioned, have you done anything? That's, that's about it. I think he's probably slightly too paranoid about his cars doing some racing stuff with them. I mean, like we, we are very much a house that there are no garage queens at all allowed, but I think he's still a little sensitive to some of these things, especially for the 480, because it's so hard to get parts that if something bad were to happen, we would be in a weird spot trying to get pieces for it to get it back together and get it up and running, especially when it's just fun to drive around like the weather here is glorious right now. We don't need to have air conditioning so we can drive through the country and see all the fall leaves right now. We've got all the hills and there's the roads out here are just so nice. And we don't exactly have a lot of really good performance cars. I think the 480 Turbo is the, is the closest thing that we have to one that could potentially do good on a track. I, I think it'd be fun to drive somewhere where you could kind of test it out and put it, put it at its limits a bit. I don't know if I would do autocross but well, I mean, I always bring up DE and, and, and Mike and Brad and I, you know, we're coaches. So you're never, you're not out there alone. It's not door to door. There's no bumping and grinding. So it's always a good experience and summit points, not very far from us. And, you know, it's a true way to really open it up, clear out the carbon, as we say, and, and see what <laughs> it's made of. Right. But, you know, you're, again, you're not alone. You have somebody parroting in your ear what to do. And, and, you know, it's a no, it's a non-contact sport. So yes. uh, something to think about. And, and for, and in terms of cost, you know, we talk about this on, on previous episodes, it's cheap and affordable, right? It's an easy way to get in. I mean, for five, six hours of track time, if you want to use all of it, it's a couple hundred bucks, right? Why not? It's probably the most fun you're going to have for that kind of money, right? <laughs> and, and, also, like, and you don't have to put uh, roll cages and things no. in for those. Now, for your E30, you would need a roll bar. <laughs> oh, because it's a convertible. Oh, convertible. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but and you'd have to pass the broomstick test. And just as an aside, we were talking about the track stuff. There is so Lockton, another insurance company, actually one of the largest insurance companies probably in North America. You know, Lockton Affinity is, has a very large reach, but they also have a division called Lockton Motorsports, and they're going to be on a subsequent episode here uh, in the near future. And they offer track insurance and it's kind of a no questions asked full value declared value policy. So if you walk up and say, based on my mods, based on this, based on rarity, that Volvo is worth 50 grand, they'll insure it for 50 grand. And if something happens, they'll cut you a check. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So it's a X percent deductible, depending on how much you pay. 10% with a minimum deductible of $2,000. So we, I just went through that. It's all fresh in my head still. <laughs> yeah. But if you guys want to learn more about that, I mean, this is totally an aside. It'll, it's going to be on a episode coming up very soon. Did you, did you learn that because you had to go through it? For a actually, actually one of our members did go through it. We wrote an article about it back in 2018, right about the time you got your, your Volvo. And he went through it with a Mustang that he hadn't had for very long. And his significant other ended up having a, a really good off. We'll call it that kiss the cement barrier and uh, crunched up the left front of the car. And they, he had track insurance on it. They took care of everything. It was no questions asked. Unlike dealing with a standard insurance company, they're used to dealing with track incidents and track cars and things like that and you know if you walked up to john's car today you wouldn't know the difference very cool very cool so my next question for you guys is you know outside of that what are the plans for the car because you know as we all have these special cars in our garages there's like calibers of of done like is it done is it done done or is there just something more on the list to check off what's the future there's always more so like so we, the Volvo Pro 80 came with two interiors, it came with a leather interior, and then it came with that lovely 1980s pristine uh, bus fabric interior, which which is what we have in it. And you, you just can't beat that feeling with it. But the door cards, <laughs> don't laugh that loudly. This is a painful experience for us both. The door cards, the original vinyl that covers them is um, vacuum-formed onto it, which they're very um, modern cars that are plastic door cards. Even in BMWs, the door cards don't have as significant of a profile as the 480 does. It's got some deep pockets in there. So when they vacuum formed it, the glue over time naturally breaks down. So you get these bubbles of air and you ruin the form and the shape of the door card because you've got that pocket underneath of it. Well, on the driver's side, the door was really bad to the point of you couldn't use part of where the door handle was like you go to grab the door handle and like there should be a gap there for your hand to wrap around the handle but the vinyl had come up and you would just hit this bubble of vinyl every time you try to so we had made the decision that we did a lot of research we watched a bunch of videos um that we were going to pull the vinyl off and put a new vinyl leather look covering on top of it so i am a uh I do a lot of sewing. I do a lot of craft work. I do a lot of building stuff and I do custom patterning. So I had created a custom pattern for the door card with nice stitching detail to piece in that, that high profile that the door had, but we did not have the expertise in laying down the glue or stretching the material correctly. Upholstery is hard, especially, especially so if you've hard. never done it before especially. and only watched YouTube videos. Yeah. So it was one of those, 
so I had I had it mocked out in muslin and I had it fitted and it and it laid well. It was just a matter of the vinyl that we got was a two way. Uh, it was a two way stretch, not a four way. So two way stretch vinyl means it only moves side to side or up and down, not both. So you have to pay attention to how you're cutting and stitching your pieces together to make sure that it stretches in the orientation that you want it to. So I spent all this time making sure that it could stretch and form to that high profile door card. And even that with the glue that we got wasn't enough to get it to fit. We got most of the wrinkles out, but it just, the look wasn't quite right. It was a hell of a lot better than the air bubble that was originally there. But now that we had pulled the vinyl off of one door card and we had the other one in place, by the way, this was what, two weeks before Radwood? When we- Was it, was it Radwood? It was no, before, it wasn't Radwood. It was Radwood, cause it, yes, it was Radwood. So it was like two weeks before Radwood where we had found out that none of this was going to work. So we ended up pulling the vinyl off of both of the door cards, including the one that I had made, scrubbing as much of the glue off as we can and experimenting with different paint and texture compounds. So the Volvo does not have vinyl door cards on it. It looks like it does until you touch it. And it's because this guy with the paint master skills of spray paint and texturizer, it looks like vinyl. It's got the texture of vinyl. As long as you don't touch it, that's the only thing that, that would let you know that it's not it. So from about a foot away, the door cards look pretty original. Yeah, uh, but if you touch them, you'll, you'll know that they're not original. Uh, essentially, I use like two different types of truck bed liner <laughs> and then color match the spray, the spray paint to get the right color to try to match it to the interior. It's really, really close, but it's not Super vinyl. Close. So like that's one of the things I'd like to get fixed. I think the only real way to get it fixed is to actually get somebody in the Netherlands who has spare door cards to mail me some. And I've, I found some people who, who have some. We also had it priced out how to do the vacuum form on the door cards. And it was astronomical because it would, it would have been custom for it. We also looked at pricing up custom up poultry for the door cards. And that was like way, way, way too much. Fixing the door cards on the interior is one of the things that we definitely want to do. With the up upgraded ECU that I got that updates the fuel map and ups the boost to 14 PSI, have certainly noticed that the clutch slips when it's really on high boost. So uh, unfortunately, Volvo, this is actually uh, on top of parts being really hard to find for the 480 because they're never sold here. A lot of the parts aren't even made anymore because they were never really all that popular cars. The parts are even hard to find for folks in Europe who have them, of which the turbo was produced in much fewer numbers than some of the other models of the 480. Uh, they had a naturally aspirated 1.7 liter, and they also had a 2.0 liter, uh, also naturally aspirated. But uh, so the turbo was produced in fewer numbers, so there's fewer parts for them, and it uses a different size flywheel and clutch disc uh, than the other ones, and they don't make it anymore, and none of the aftermarket part suppliers make it. So I spent a good part of my quarantine time during, uh, during COVID cross-referencing and researching Saks and Saks parts and Renault parts and finally finding a part number that I think is going to work as a replacement upgraded clutch that won't that hopefully won't slip but I have no idea if it's going to fit. So it sounds to me like in this case you're and, and don't take this the wrong way it sounds like you're a bit of a purist right because we come at it from the motorsports world 
And getting a custom clutch made is not really a big deal. You take your stock clutch, you send it out and somebody makes you one. Like there's companies like Center Force and Kennedy and a lot of others that'll do that. So it, I guess it depends on your level, but I, I respect it, right? Because I look at it from the perspective of, you know, this is a really interesting like concourse car where you want to keep it period appropriate. You want to keep it as original as possible. You want to do all these kinds of things that somebody doesn't come back and say, well, you have this other thing in there, but for those of us on the other side of the fence, we're like, blow up a clutch, whatever. So we'll get another one. We'll get one made, you know, that kind of, it's not a big deal. It's kind of the same with the axles too. It's like, well, those inner bearings probably the same as a Volkswagen. It's like, just go swap them from something else. But, you know, I understand it's part of that. I don't want to call it the obsession, but it's part of the passion around this car. And I really, I really appreciate that. And I really sympathize with it because I've, I've been through it with some other cars myself. I mean, I had an original Audi Quattro and I nerded out on that thing forever. And I had a coupe Quattro, not a, not a 4,000. Right. So those cars, extremely rare, only 627 and brought to North America, not just the US, but North America. So talk about finding rare parts and stuff like that. But, you know, we've talked about this on other episodes. We have members in GTM with we have a Renault R5 Turbo 2. We've got some Packards. We've got all these other cars. And it's like, you know, we talk about scarcity and rarity of parts. and, And a lot of people have come to the conclusion that. No, you're not going to find a part for a 1927, you know, Super 8. You're going to have to have somebody make it for you. It's just, it's gotten to that point, right? But, but there's some allowances there, right? And if you are a hardcore concourse person, they, they're allowing that nowadays. And it's stuff that you can't visually see, but it helps the operation of the vehicle, right? So, but I get it. It's a struggle. Overall, it's super interesting. It's so unique. I mean, so by your research, are there any other 480s in the United States or are you kind of in a, in a group by yourself? One. I, I know of at least one, maybe two. I think in early days of Bring a Trailer, there was a white one listed before they started the auction site on Bring a Trailer a while back. It was somewhere down in Florida, but that's all I've ever seen of that one. And then I did, I did come across somebody on one of the European Volvo 480 forums, who I think is involved with like the Volvo Club of America, who's out in California, who actually has one. Uh, he has a earlier, I think it's an 88 naturally aspirated. And I think he was in one of the Volvo Club magazines with his P1800 ES hatchback from the 70s next to the 480 Turbo hatchback. And so there's some styling cues there shared between the P1800 uh, ES and the, the 480 as kind of the, the follow-on to that. And then the C30 is kind of a follow-on to the 480. Absolutely. I can definitely see that. So and I want to ask- The C30 always looked fun. <laughs> Except for that Except back. for that big window. Yeah. Well, that, like... back, that back glass they borrowed from Lancia, but you know, we won't, we'll leave that alone. But anyway, because the, the Y10 or the Ypsilon DHE, as they called it in Italian, the, uh, that had that same rear trunk. And obviously those rear lights are from the SUV. I mean, that's kind of, it had a weird back end to it. It's very strange. <laughs> but I wanted to ask, you know, because this is still kind of fresh for you guys. I mean, we're talking 2018 timeframe. We're only two years. Let's call it three as we, as we move into 21. Would you go back and do it all over again? Or would you slap yourself silly if you had a time machine? I would go back and do it all over again in a heartbeat and maybe buy two Two more of them. I was going to say for the 480, yes, we would do it all over again. Probably definitely get a second one if we could, maybe three, depending. 
like we were in a weird situation where we had like one extra parking space at the compound so we could have had the extra car if we were in a better situation we would have had more spots probably could have bought over more cars we looked at other cars we talked about buying more than just the 480 but that was the one that we brought back at one point you even asked me if i had anything i wanted to add to your trailer or add to your shipment <laughs> we did yeah Wow. So I think we covered a lot of interesting stuff here. This is a very unique car. I think you guys are in a really unique position, but it's also interesting to hear all these things. And as I said, kind of in the pre-show, there's so many different types of car enthusiasts out there. And there's so many different stories that just aren't shared. And when you walk by a car like yours at a car show, you look at it, you go, huh, what's that? But you know, you got to take that extra step to get the story out. So I thank you guys so much. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and sharing this with everybody and getting us to know a little bit more about something as unique as the Volvo 480. And for all of our listeners out there, we're going to post some pictures and extra information about the car, specifically Nate's car on our website. So gtmotorsports.org. And we'll probably repost that on Garage Riot. And that way you guys can go see the visuals as you're going through this particular episode. So again, Nate and Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks Thanks for letting me talk about the 480. Um, it's really fun uh, taking it out and letting people uh, see it. As, as we've talked about, it's a bit quirky and most people just kind of pass it by. But for that one person who's like a weird Volvo head that sees it and is able to see it in the US, it like it makes me so happy when people So I'm gonna I'm gonna put this out there and I know it's gonna make Emily mad, but I gotta get a chance to drive it that way I can write a test drive article on it. What do you think? I I I that would be fine. I will eventually get to drive it. Let's be clear. One way or another, it's going to happen. It's going to have to move across the parking lot or move across something. And he's going to be in a boot or unable to do it. He'll spike his drink. I injured myself working on the Mercedes again. That's right. Well, on that note, thank you again. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey listeners, Crew Chief Eric here. Do you like what you've seen, heard, and read from GTM? Great, so do we, and we have a lot of fun doing it. But please remember, we're fueled by volunteers and remain a no annual fee organization, but we still need help to keep the momentum going so that we can continue to record, write, edit, and broadcast all of your favorite content. So be sure to visit www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports or visit our website and click in the top right corner on the support and donate to learn how you can help. Mm -hmm.